Assalamu alaikum, bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Welcome to our Tuesday session continuing um, Surah Al-Zukhruf. Um, I just thought I would take a moment. We were talking um, recently about our website and um, we're, you know, relooking certain things. And I thought that I would just share like some of the history of the website because some people have said that they are sort of confused about, you know, some of the different things. And so I thought it'd be interesting just to share a little bit of history. Um, we um, actually back in the late 90s, we um, built a website called scholaroftheHouse.org, which is still up there. It's still like hanging on. Um, it's like a dinosaur. Um, at the time, it was pretty cool, but it's like it was a Yahoo Store 2.0. And if anyone knows anything about technology, they're probably like, "What? There's still people on that?" Yes, we're probably like the last ones. <laughs> but it was a, a, oppor a opportunity to um, sell tapes because back at that time we would record like you know the tapsir and the things that we were doing on audio cassette tape and so I would literally would like make copies of audio cassette tapes and sell them so people actually um, you know could listen and people actually did buy some not many but you know they did um, and then the the technology um, changed it converted more to CDs so then I used to fulfill orders where I would literally like digitized from audio cassette and then, you know, make photocopy or copies of CDs and send those out. Um, and, you know, Scholar of the House was pretty, um, I, I think it pretty much captured, you know, like some articles and, you know, some lectures and then the tests here. Um, and then things, um, you know, became more and more Islamophobic. And also it became clear that Muslims were not really interested in spending money on knowledge or on, you know, buying audio cassette tapes or CDs. And, you know, we thought, okay, well, it's really important that people have this knowledge available to them. So we actually then just um, converted things digitally and made it free. So um, that sort of, you know, changed. And, um, you know, we, again, you know, it's a small following. People would find the professor and then they would be interested and then they would have opportunity to, you know, download things like that. So then about, um, and just a little history about the name too, people wondered why we called it Scholar of the House. So interestingly, um, you know, the professor came to Yale back in 1982. And he, when he arrived at Yale, um, there's so many interesting stories about his time at Yale, but he um, was reading about 10 pages an hour and literally with the aid of a dictionary and would look up word after word after word and he would be competing with classmates who went to prep school and you know were reading like multiple times faster than he would but he just dug down very you know deep it was like studying all the time um, and his um, proficiency increased to the point when he was a junior he actually won the most prestigious prize called scholar of the house where you actually could um, I think write your own um, I don't know if it's a, like a thesis or a it's not a dissertation, but basically you got to define what you wanted to study and it was extremely prestigious, it was very competitive and he was able to get that award for both his junior and senior year. So that's why we named it Scholar of the House. It was just kind of a, a cool reference, but people over the years sort of like, was like Scholar of the House, are you trying to say he's the scholar, he's this, you know, it just became like also kind of, of criticism as usual. Um, and anyway, so um, then about um, 2016 or so, um, you know, things had also, technology obviously had advanced a lot and it was time for also a refresh and people were interested in a lot of his scholarship and they would often ask, you know, has a professor ever written about this topic or that topic? And one of the challenges was um, that, you know, I really believed in 
in his scholarship, people you know who have read his books and read his articles know how powerful they are. And there were so many articles and so many um, things that it was hard to really find, like, okay, where did he write about this particular issue? And I always thought it would be great to have some kind of searchable database. And so the easiest way to do that was to create a website and put all of his writings, or as much as I could, onto um, a website where, with a search function. And so in about 2016, um, I built a, you know, a website, dumped as much as I could on it, um, and it's still there. It's searchforbeauty.org. And so actually, if you go to scholarofthehouse.org, to the main page, or to some of the you know, main sections, it'll actually just automatically send you over to Search for Beauty. But so it was really intended to be an online searchable archive. Um, and he's written a lot more than is actually on that site. But if you actually go on the site, you'll see there's a lot of stuff there. There are articles, lectures, fetwas, um, you know, chutbas, halakas, recordings, and things like that. Um, and I remember like building it. Um, I, this was like my big project during Ramadan, and I like pushed really hard, and I launched it on Laylatul Qadr. So that was like my big goal. Um, but anyway, then we, this was before Usuli, and then we launched Usuli at the end of 2017, and I wanted to you know, create a different website presence because Usuli was not just around the professor's writings, but about conversations with people, scholarship, you know, investigations into other issues with other people, and, and you know, that it had a, you know, has a vision for growing much bigger than one person. So um, Usuli then really, the website captures the work that has been done since Usuli began, but there is a whole universe of work that came before Usuli. And interestingly, you know, a lot of times people know, you know, Professor Abul Fadl much more than they know Usuli, so they kind of find the Khaled Abul Fadl or Search for Beauty site first. And the whole, you know, approach of that is we're trying to, you know, create a new enlightenment, a new, you know, a search for beauty, ethics, and just a different way of understanding Islam. And that is really a lot more around his scholarship and his methodology. But Usuli is also, I mean, obviously the Usuli methodology, and it's you know clearly you know um, based in the professor's scholarship and work. But it has you know a vision for growing um, in the future, um, and and hopefully you know will involve more scholars, more people, you know, and um, you know the future of Islam, inshallah. And at the base of it, the Tafsir, Project Illumin. So that is a very quick history, if anyone wants to know. Um, so, but definitely um, searchforbeauty.org is a great place to start for people who have friends and are asking, how do I learn about Islam? You know, there are sections where you can explore different topics that people are always interested in, you know, women, dogs, ethics, um, history. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of information there that is just, and there's actually like a one, uh, Islam 101 and a Sharia 101, so it's a very good, introductory you know way to approach islam and then usuli is just really kind of um the the website there captures everything that we've been doing here so um you know and hopefully hopefully more inshallah so and then one last thing that actually i wanted to say that i became aware of right before this is that um apparently maybe people already know this um israel apparently just asked the u.s for an additional 100 billion dollars in emergency aid um, and so CARE is sending around a petition and information asking people to get in contact with their Congress people to obviously, you know, protest that and, you know, and say we should not um, support giving any more money to Israel. But so I just wanted to let you know, so, you know, go to the CARE website, um, sign, sign on, con you know, call your Congress people, your, you know, anyone that you can just to spread the word. So that is it. 
and looking forward to another amazing session, inshallah. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen wa subhanallah al-Aliyil Azim. Assalatu wassalamu ala Muhammad wa ala alihi wa ashabihi wa ta'ala wa ahsanin illa yawm al-Din. Wa mushrah li sadri wa sirri amri wa ahlul uqdatan min nisani yafqah qawli. So we went through Surah Al-Zukhruf um, reviewing the issues that, um, that, that revolve around the, the, the Surah from both a traditional and Sufi-esque perspectives, although we focused more on the traditional uh, types of issues. And as we said, that what, um, although there were a lot of different issues that we talked about uh, in the narrative of the Surah, um, what we are left with in traditional approaches is wondering um, about the thematic unity of the, the surah and also the question that we discussed last halakha uh, of the surah being a part of the hawamim and yet it is revealed in the late Meccan period rather than earlier as we would tend to expect with a surah of this nature. And all of this we've discussed in the past halakhan on Saturday. And so what re remains now is uh, the, the way that I approach uh, surah to Zuhruf or my understanding of surah to Zuhruf and um, bringing all this material together. And in order to do that, we don't need to go ayah by ayah. Uh, we, we need to understand the basic themes of the surah and what the surah uh, addresses and highlights and places in focus. Okay. So, the first, we start out with the sore that are often reminding us of the fact that the Quran is a, um, or underscores the fact that the Quran is a text that takes on the miracle of language or the challenge of language and meets the challenge of language. And that now we are no longer in the age of superstition and the age of mythology or the age of 
narratives about the miraculous, but we are text-centered, and that there is a revelation that will be preserved and that will survive, and that this revelation will be a continuing revelation to humanity with a continuing message, uh, a message that it's important to always remember that this is a message that is both is rooted in the Abrahamic prophets, all of them, um, and onwards as a continuing revelation. And the key to that type of signifier is the fact that the Quran alerts you to its linguistic miracle by saying, We've made it in Arabic. Quran taqulun, so, so that you may reflect. And we've talked about this in the past halakha about why particularly the Arabic language um, in this day and age. And if you study the history of languages and especially the, the, the languages at the time that the Quran is revealed, um, you, you're struck by the fact that there doesn't seem to have been a cultural linguistic practice that would be, have been more fitting for this type of challenge than, in fact, the culture that had evolved around the Arabic language. And we've addressed, um, we've addressed that in the last halakha. Okay, but then the, the first key to the theme of the surah is precisely ayah number five. Now, traditional interpreters, as we've talked about, have always said that this ayah is saying to the Meccans, I know that you are sinners, and I know that you have are deviant people, but nevertheless, do you think just because you have, in a, in a pig-headed way, in a stubborn way, in an in a obstinate way, insisted on going the wrong path, do you think that we would not send a prophet to you? Which, of course, that's a layer of meaning. But what I want to alert your attention to is that it is a more general revelation that is addressed to a more to a broader phenomenon. That the language itself doesn't limit itself to the Meccan context. But the key here is Qawman Musrifin. Al-Israf are people who are iniquitous, um, unfair, and in this context, unfair to themselves because of what? Well, Musrifin means that they are taken to excess, that they are, they, they're, they're imbalanced in one way, in some way, in some way. 
But in the context of this surah, Musrifin, the best way to understand the expression is that you are unfair, and as we will see, because you're superficial, because you are a people of superficiality. So it's like saying, If you're superficial, and you're, you're only you and Allah, I mean, by reflecting upon your own affairs, and can you, can you, um, who can make that judgment whether you fall under this category or not? But that if you are in fact amongst those people. This has a special message for you. Another means we, we do you, in, in this context. Do we? Do you think we will abstain from talking to you? Safhan. As if, do you think that God? It's simply, and it's actually a remarkably beautiful way of saying it, because do you think that God is not interested in you just because you are superficial? Just because you're airheads? It's like saying, you know, I, I know that your, your, your idiocy um, makes you do terrible things, but pay attention, because regardless of how much you've been unfair to yourself, God is still interested in your fate. Okay. Now, what's interesting here is that in Surah Al-Zukhruf, many of the Hawamim if you go back and you visit the Hawamim Surah that we've talked about, the Hawamim are often talking to people who are um, idol worshippers or atheists, don't believe in God at all. But Surah Al-Zukhruf is interesting because it is one of the Surah that is talking to people who actually believe in God. So if you look at verse 9, for instance, وَلَئِنْ سَأَلْتَهُمْ مَنْ خَلْقَ السَّمَوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ لَيَقُولُنَّ خَلَقَهُنَّ الْعَزِيزُ الْعَلِيمُ If you ask them who created the heaven and earth, they will say, not only God created it, but the all-knowing master. So these are people who actually believe in God. And we can't ignore that. So it has a message to people who believe in God, but yet are still Musrifin, are still people of excess, still people of inequity, still people of superficiality. So of course that begs the question of, well, what is 
their ailment. What is the 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 anatomy of their israf? Israf, as we said, means someone who is taken to excess, someone who's superficial, someone who is um, imbalanced in some fundamental way, or even uh, sometimes we use the word israf to describe someone who uh, uh, spends too much, like someone who just um, um, a Muslim is someone who spends beyond their mean. Okay. So, Allah reminds them that you forget that whatever nama you enjoy you enjoy because Allah facilitated this earth so you have an entitlement problem you 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 used Allah's water you enjoy Allah's um, gifts you ride in, on Allah's animals you the transportation this is in in uh, in Ayah 13, um, but still the problem of Israf is within you. So it's like saying, well, you, you know, you're you're super you're so superficial that you take things for granted, and your ailment remains. And again, what is the ailment? And interestingly, we, fair, we get the first delivery of the main theme in the Quranic discourse on those who جَعَلُوا لِلَّهِ جُزْءًا Those, and it's a, it's a remarkable expression because Traditional commentators paused at the word just for um, a long time and struggled with it. And they said, well, some said, well, جَعْلُوا لِلَّهِ and means that they said that God copulated with jinn and gave birth to angels and angels are the daughters of God and as we said yes that was part of the mythology of um, certain tribes that lived outside of Mecca but the expression doesn't necessarily mean that they attributed daughters to God so in fact grammatically as Zamakshari says to say that ja, that juz means daughters is is incorrect, and that that the expression doesn't equal um, to, uh, uh, attributing daughters to God. So, but juz, and some have said, well, it means that they've. They've imagined that divinity can be separated between father and son or father and daughter. 
So they segmented divinity like the Christians did. Um, that has its own grammatical problem as well. The most accurate linguistic interpretation of Jalulillahi Juz'an is that they diluted divinity. In other words, they did not give divinity its due. But what's really interesting here is then they didn't give divinity its due. So at one level, the Quran comes and tells us that, well, in part, some of them say God has, the angels are God's daughters. But that is, the Quran talks about these people in several uh, uh, several places. But in Surah Al-Zukhruf, it alerts us to something important. That they themselves have a moral flaw. And the moral flaw is when, if they have daughters, they're extremely upset. And if they have sons, they're happy. وَإِذَا بُشِّرَ أَحَدُهُمْ بِمَا ضَرَبَ لِلرَّحْمَانِ مَثَلًا ظَلَّ وَجْهُهُ مُسْوَدًّا وَهُوَ قَضِيمٌ If one of them gets the news that they're having a daughter, they are in absolute misery. The superficiality starts showing up and starts becoming clear. Sons are a sign of prestige. The more sons you have, the more prestigious you are. The more power you have. Daughters are a responsibility and a liability. So, and in our age, we can even give that another layer of meaning and say that they're stuck on gender. But it's not just that they're stuck on gender because they will like one over the other, but because they covet prestige and power. Now, then we get this amazing expression in verse 18. And as I told you that from patriarchal interpretation said, well, that's referring to girls, and God is saying, you know, uh, girls are flawed because they are, Yunashra of Hudhiyya is a remarkable expression. It's like um, they're raised with um, decorative items, um, uh, raised, you know, wearing uh, earrings and necklaces and rings and so on, as if that's there's something wrong with that, and that they're they're not very um, intellectually 
intelligent. And as I told you, others said no, that this refers to the idols that Meccans would worship because these idols would be highly, they would decorate them and they're mute. They, they, they don't argue. But if you reflect on the Arabic, it is broader than that. And it's saying, it is not referring to either necessarily to idols or to women or to girls. It is referring to anything that is raised where Yunasha of Al-Hidya literally can be understood as being raised surrounded by superficiality. And, and instead of being raised to be intellectually adept. So it's like the, Allah is saying, and again, you can understand the Quran as layers of meaning. The meaning of the Quran never ends. There's nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with the Qur'an yielding levels of meaning in every age and place. And if you study the, go back and study this verse, it's like it's saying, listen, you, you attached yourself to symbols of power and symbols of prestige. And among the things you do is that you have an option. You can raise your offspring to focus on their, their, their intellectual merit, or you can raise them focusing on things like wealth and prestige and clothes and signs of, uh, you know, whatever signified honor and prestige and power and Allah is, is here comes and says again remember common musrifin the, the the people who are wedded to superficiality and it is this superficiality that starts that makes them fantasize some bizarre uh, erotica that God has sexy angelic daughters, you know, prancing around in the heavens half naked. It is this superficiality that makes them not want daughters and want boys instead as a sign of power as prestige. It is this superficiality that also make them focus when they raise their children on symbols of prestige and power rather than substance and meaning. Okay. And then of course you notice in 21 the reference back again to that shift in paradigm that we've talked about many times, 
the shift to a, a literary paradigm, uh, a reference to what counts as authoritative is textual evidence rather than anything else. Then, but there is another level to this malady. بَلْ قَالُوا إِنَّا وَجَدْنَا أَبَاءَنَا عَلَىٰ أُمَّةٍ وَإِنَّا عَلَىٰ أَثَارِهِمْ مُهْتَدُونَ This is now 22 and 23. And part of this superficiality is that they follow the traditions of prestige and symbolism of prestige and power that are embedded in the cultural practices of their society. The issue is not whether you are following your father or your uncle or your mother or your grandfather or whatever. That, that's not the issue. The issue is is that they are saying وَجَبْنَ أَبَاءَنَا عَلَىٰ أُمَّةٍ عَلَىٰ أُمَّةٍ means that we have found established institutions, established cultures and practices. And we are following these cultures and practices and the message becomes clearer when you read 23 وَكَذَلِكَ مَا أَرْسَلْنَا مِنْ قَبْلِكَ فِي قَرْيَةٍ مِنْ نَذِيرٍ إِلَّا قَالَ مُطْرَفُوهَا إِنَّا وَجَدْنَا أَبَاءَنَا عَلَىٰ أُمَّةٍ وَإِنَّا عَلَىٰ أَثَرِيمٍ الْمُقْتَدُونَ That 23, that we, this is classically what keeps happening. It is the مُطْرَفِيهَا, مُطْرَفِيهَا means it is the people who are wealthy and powerful. The people who are most vested in power and prestige and wealth are the ones that say these are the institutions that we have these are the practices the cultures the society that we have and these cultural and social social practices are what define merit and worth and that's what we're going to stick to we are not interested in a, a different way of seeing reality because reality is already defined to us through our social institutions. And that's, you couldn't find a better expression than ala ummatin for that. And it's the only time that it's used in the Quran in that way. Ala ummatin. And that's why in 24, it says, وَقُلْ وَلَوْ جِئْتُكُمْ بِأَهْدَى مِمَّا وَجَدْتُمْ عَلَيْهِ أَبَاءُكُمْ So you are going to stick to whatever you believe defines prestige even if what I bring you makes more sense and is more moral, أَهْدَى more ethical you don't care. You're still going to follow whatever you, you, you found in your society and your culture. 
Okay. And then, at this point, it brings in the story of Ibrahim and in this context, why? Because Ibrahim rebelled against, remember, his father Azar was among the leaders of the community. And Azar expected Ibrahim to inherit all the prestige and power that Azar had. It's like, you know, I, it, it, when a wealthy person says, you know, I've got my companies and my corporations and I expect you to take over. And instead, Ibrahim starts through rational inquiry, not through revelation, to think about life that his father Azar has built and that the way of life in his society and he rebels against it. And he says, this doesn't make sense to me. It's immoral. And the way you value people or the way you decide what's ethical or what's not is in the, when uh, Abrahamic society or the society of, of, of Abraham's time was, was like most ancient societies was highly classist, highly racist, highly segmented, power is clearly defined and Ibrahim rebels against all of it. So the references to Ibrahim salam and especially notice وَإِذَا قَالَ إِبْرَاهِيمُ لِأَبِيهِ وَقَوْمِهِ إِنَّنِي بَرَاءٌ مِمَّا تَعْبُدُونَ Okay, I'm, I'm not following you. This is 26. إِلَّا الَّذِي فَطَرَنِي فَإِنَّهُ سَيَهْدِينَ Now, I know that Allah gave me a fitra, فَطَرَنِي Give me an intuition. And I know that if I follow this intuition, Allah will guide me. Later on, Ibrahim becomes Ibrahim the Prophet, like Prophet Muhammad Okay. Then, then at this point, we get وَقَالُوا لَوْلَا نُزِّلَ هَذَا الْقُرْآنُ عَلَىٰ رَجُلٍ مِنَ الْقَرْيَطَيْنِ عَظِيمٍ They say, if God chose a prophet, why did God choose Muhammad instead choosing someone who is richer, someone who is more powerful, someone who is more prestigious? We've talked about this, but here now, you understand this reference in a different way. It is the, the same thing that the Quran alerted you when it started out with Qawm Musrifin. That, what is their issue? What is their problem? You see their superficiality come to life. It's like, well, we don't care whether what he says makes sense or not. We don't care whether the Quran is Arabi, Mubin, it's 
an Arabic that is compelling or not. We don't care about anything. What we care about is that he is not sufficiently prestigious. Now, it's easy for us to say, oh, look at those Meccans. But no, it's not the issue of Meccans. We are those people. We often look to who are you, what is your prestige, what is your position, and we have criteria for entry or exit for whether we are willing to evaluate the substance of what is being said or not. And that is precisely why, and this, this, this by the way, didn't escape uh, a lot of commentators who said that when they say, that that is the Quran pointing to a social malady that is quite common. That the only people that count are the people that are endowed with, with prestige, prestige, as the Quran calls it. People who are raised with uh, uh, all the, you know, they go to the right prep schools, they go to the right universities, they go to the, they have the right names, they have the right uh, internships, they, you know, have all the, 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 uh, the, what do you call it, the signs of, of prestige and power, and then they are worth more than other human beings. And what they say matters more as well. Okay. And then when Allah takes you to in 32, 33, and 34 to tell, to tell you that وَلَوْلَا أَنْ يَكُونَ ولولا أن يكون الناس أمة واحدة لجعلنا لما يكفر بالرحمن لبيوتهم سقفا من فضة ومعارج عليها يظهرون then Allah says well you don't realize that wealth is the last way of measuring things from a divine perspective from an what is immoral perspective that in fact it, if it hadn't been for God's mercy you people are often so superficial that all of you could have followed in the footsteps of the richest among you those who have you know ceilings made of of fudda of of um, silver and etc basically the fanciest homes that if it hadn't been for god's mercy all of you would just follow blindly the the richest among you regardless of the, whether they believe in god whether they're moral whether they're and 
it is, it is like saying, if, if Allah didn't hold back in, um, you know, if, um, if all those who did not believe in God were all extremely wealthy, it would have been that no one would have remained on earth that believes in God. Again, it's, it's like alerting you to the problem with superficiality. It is, it's like saying, it is not the fact that someone has homes, the, the expensive homes, or ma'arij, you know, homes that are so fancy that, that is worthy of being followed and worthy of being considered as holders of truth. And here, وَزُخْرُفَ وَإِنَّ كُلَّ ذَلِكَ لَمَّا مَتَاعُ الْحَيَاةُ الدُّنْيَا وَالْآخِرَةُ عِنْدَ رَبِّكَ لِلْمُتَّقِينَ And here we get the word Zukhruf. And all, if, the obsession of human beings with Zukhruf. What is Zukhruf? Zukhruf is any glitter that captures the eye. Zukhruf are all superficial things. A fancy car that captures your eye is Zukhruf. A fancy suit that captures your eye is Zukhruf. A fancy home is Zukhruf. Is all Zukhruf bad? No. Not all Zukhruf is bad. But Zukhruf, that defines your value system, is bad. So, if you are like, you as human beings, your eyes become wide and hypnotized, by the glitter, by the Zukhruf, and you follow it. Now, the Zukhruf, the glitter, could be cars, could be homes, could be all, but the Zukhruf, the glitter, could be anything else, including, as we will see in an instant, in a second, including fancy ideas, including symbols of power, including beautiful music that makes you, anything that makes you follow blindly and relies on the aspect of glitter is Zuhruf. And that is why this is followed, وَمَنْ يَعْشُ عَنْ ذِكْرِ الرَّحْمَانِ نُقَيِّدْ لَهُ شَيْطَانًا فَهُوَ لَهُ قَرِينَ So it immediately tells you, what is the problem with this? The problem with this is that if your heart is attracted to the Zuhruf, 
even, by the way, Zuchruf could be a sexy woman, a sexy man. That's Zuchruf. If your heart is, a, is attracted to the glitter of life so that you forget the remembrance of your Lord, this is 36. What will become your companion is a demon. Now, it could be an actual demon or a metaphorical demon. So in other words, you become the demon. I believe it's an actual demon, as I said before. I believe that if those who live in glitter, those who care about their prestige, their homes, their jobs, and, and superficial, 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 they, they literally develop a demonic attachment. Now, but those who be, believe that, no, you become the demon, that's a respectable position, I, you know, it's just a matter of what your experiences in, your, in life led you to. But notice, So that, that dynamic, that glitter, and the demonic that grows out of that glitter, is 37, is what? It makes you think you're going on the right path. You think you're okay. You know, I have a good job. I, I have my, you know, I have a nice home. I have a nice whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm fine. But, in fact, you're lost. You know, the lost, when we were young, when we were kids, they would tell us the story that I, I think it's repeated in a lot of Sufi texts in different versions and different formats. That um, the the story of the shaitan and the sheikh that there was a very pious sheikh who uh, lived somewhere. Again, depending on the version, um, that who. It had rejected all the glitter of life and so the, the, the governor or the king or whatever thought, you know, I have a daughter, a beautiful daughter and I want someone to teach my daughter the Quran so, and I'm worried about so I'm going to send her to the sheikh because he's very trustworthy and he's very pious and all of that. And Shaitan wanted to make sure that the Sheikh goes astray. So he goes to the Sheikh and he says, you know, all I want focuses on one thing, um, getting the Sheikh to drink, just try alcohol, look at, you know, the story goes on about how like, the shaitan makes alcohol sound very tempting. And so one night the sheikh drinks alcohol. And of course, because it's the first time that he ever drinks alcohol, he becomes intoxicated. And while intoxicated, shaitan 
convinces him to go and sexually assault the 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 girl that he's supposed to teach. And after the he does that, that girl becomes pregnant. And when she becomes pregnant, Shaitan comes and says to the Sheikh, you know, now everyone is gonna find out that you've impregnated this girl. It's going to be the end of everything. Get rid of the problem and then repent and then you can be on the right path. And so Shaitan convinces that Sheikh to kill the girl and hide her body. So her pregnancy. So that happens. And then after that, Shaitan goes in the form of a human being to the king and says to the king, I know where your girl is, girl who had disappeared. I know where she's buried. And in fact, that Sheikh impregnated her. And the proof is if you dig in this place, you will find your girl buried, murdered, buried, and pregnant. And the, the, the king goes and digs that place and he finds, in fact, his daughter who had been so and so forth. So he arrests the sheikh and he, the sheikh is sentenced to death. So shortly before the sheikh is to be executed, Shaitan again appears to him and he says, um, okay, you're going to be executed, you've committed murder, you've, if you believe in me, as your master, I will save you from execution. And after I save you and you are free from prison, then you can repent and go back to your God. So the Sheikh says, okay, you are my master. And when he does that, Shaitan lets it be executed. So this one, you know, you're, we're little children. We're always told the story in different versions and forms and so on. So uh, as to what your shaitan becoming a, a, a shaitan becoming a kareem to you means um the whisperings never end the 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 tricks never end you know just me it, it it's always a compromise here a compromise there and before you know it you're a different human being altogether but what shaitan always tempts people with is zuhruf, is the glitter. It's always the glitter. Often when people get there, they discover that it wasn't as glamorous as they thought it would be. Whether it's a job, a home, a car, a, a, a man, a woman, and you know, an affair, a relationship, whatever it is, it is the glitter that they become obsessed with and they pursue and... Okay, after telling you this, after telling you this, it takes you to the, one of the most powerful stories, but also one of the most scary stories. Because here, what's involved is not an individual. What's involved is an entire society. And that's Moses and the Pharaoh. Now, what is it 
notice that the Pharaoh, and here you can understand when, when the Pharaoh says about Moses, look at this man who can hardly speak and doesn't even have, wear any ornaments and he doesn't have any insignia of investure, of power and prestige. You understand why this is being said in Surah Zuhruf. The Pharaoh is saying, look at me, I am a man with a lot of glitter. And what we know about ancient Egyptians, they wear, they, all ancient Egyptian palaces would have an area where they would store gold, like a bank inside the palace. And they would have an accountant whose job was to keep track of the, all the pieces of gold, all the necklaces, all the jewels, all the so on and so forth. And so the, the Pharaoh is, you know, saying, um, look, I have all these rivers, I have all this power, I have all this wealth. Look at my appearance versus the appearance of Moses. He can hardly speak as eloquently as I can, as, and not only that, he doesn't have anything that looks impressive. But the most important thing in this Quranic reference, he thought, he treated his people with remarkable arrogance, as high and mighty, and then as a result they obeyed him. But here you pause and you think, okay, why did they obey him? Well, yeah, partly it could be they are afraid of punishment. But if they were afraid of punishment, when Pharaoh was killed and his army was demolished, they would have then become liberated and followed Moses. But that's not what happened with the Egyptians. They, he gave his people and notice the Quran says that they are they were a corrupt people. Why what is their corruption? Is that they coveted what Pharaoh had to promise, the glitter, the wealth, the power. And this is again, so this is why we have first the story of Ibrahim, then or then mention the 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 um, um, the reference to Ibrahim and the reference now to Moses. But in this time, with this emphasis, that if. The first problem with the pharaohs of life is that a lot of people start 
making excuses to acclimate themselves to the lifestyle that the Pharaoh offers them, to adapt to that lifestyle. So it is not that they are concerned about ethics or about what's right or wrong or about justice or about... Any, they're concerned about living. And that is precisely the problem when you hear people say, oh, you know, political Islam is bad, so what you have to do is just focus on praying and fasting and raising your children and leave. The, the problem is, is that just because you pray and fast, it doesn't mean that you are living an ethical life. The problem is, is that even if you as a person can avoid living a life of being completely absorbed by superficiality and glitter, your children will not be able to avoid it. Because if they grow up in a society where everything that defines value and morality are material things, no, no principles of justice, no principles of virtue, but simply raw materialism or raw power like privilege and class and race and so on, eventually they will acclimate themselves to that way of life and they will become common fossil they will become a corrupt people because they will find a way to cohabitate with that and to philosophize that and to make it okay so in authoritarian societies you know, those people that tell you, oh, you know, in Islam, there is, you just obey the unjust ruler. Authoritarian societies, one society after another, are notoriously corrupt. I mean, you, you can't do anything without paying bribes, and you can't live, make a living in countries like Egypt or Syria or Jordan or uh, Morocco, or what, without re either paying bribes or receiving bribes. But that's the price of living under a pharaoh. It is, there's, people no longer grow up interested in right or wrong, or justice or injustice, or virtual or not. They, they grow up interested only and who is powerful, who can give me, get me a, a, a head in life, and who can hurt me and hold me back in life. A and that is the problem with despotism and the pharaonic paradigm. So although those people, as I said last halakha, like the, the, the folks of the, in Zaytuna, that, you know, pr preach piety, but what they're doing is, is that in effect, they're preaching corruption. They're, they're preaching fusuk. Like, look at the Emirat, the supposed country of tolerance. One of the most corrupt countries on the face of the earth. 
You can't do business in the Emirates without bribes. Human trafficking and sex trade in the Emirates is out of control. One of the, I mean, the amount of corruption in that little country that's supposed to be the country of tolerance, blah, blah, all that nonsense, it is just astounding. And it is the combination of Zuchruf and authoritarianism. Okay. So, then Surah Zuhruf will mention the example of Isa alayhi salam. But without giving us the type of even detail or the, 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 the level of detail at least that is mentioned with Ibrahim السلام, or mentioned with uh, Musa السلام. because the issue is Isa is different as we will see. One of the things that about uh, before before uh, moving on in the surah, um, one of the things about وَقَيَّدْنَا لَهُ شَيْطَانًا I want to uh, try to explain this concept. Which, I mean, it's it's an adaptation of, of things in the Islamic tradition. Um, the only thing in existence That is this life without death is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah is the only source of life, absolute eternal life. No beginning, no end. Everything else in existence is a mixture of life and death, a mixture of existence and non-existence. From, you know, from the time you come to this world, the minute you're born, your body is constantly producing dead cells, your skin, your hair, your and as you get older and older, the aspects of your body that is 
more dead than alive increases. When you're young, you're more alive than dead. But you're experiencing, I mean, death without knowing it, it your body at least, is, is constantly producing. Uh, and as you get older, you're, you're not rejuvenating in the same way that when you are younger and until you finally die. And everything else, the, the, the sun, everything in creation is always that mixture of life and death and eventually death overcomes. So you are before or you confront a, a, an existential question do you attach, what do you attach yourself to and what do you recognize as within you? In the same way that your body dies, there are aspects of your soul that live and aspects of your soul that die. Every time you live in anxiety, fear, despair, hopelessness, darkness, you are ex not experiencing the divine, you are experiencing the deviation from the divine. Every time you feel light, enlightenment, hopefulness, happiness, that fear, that, 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 energy of, of, of being, you are experiencing the divine. There are a lot of people that think they are doing the, that they think that they are, in fact, but dhikr law, law, is opening your soul to that life force that is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Dhikrullah is opening yourself so that your soul is permeated. As the Sufis would say, تخلق بخلق الله, that what permeates you are the virtues of divinity. So what permeates you is compassion, mercy, justice, enlightenment. Are there people that pray and they're permeated by cruelty? Absolutely. Are there people that pray but they're permeated with despair and hopeful hopelessness? Absolutely. Pray and permeated with depression and anxiety? Absolutely. Pray and permeated with injustice? Absolutely. But so they're not in dhikr. They're doing the functions of ibadah, but not the truth of dhikr. Dhikr, like everything else in the world, 
the more you practice it, the more you become adept at it. You start out needing hours of zikr to feel a glimmer of hope or a glimmer of light. You develop to a point where you need a second of zikr to feel endless enlightenment and endless hope and endless light. It is what you put in, but what is important here is to understand the following. And this is all related to the theme of Zuchruf. If you don't attach yourself to the eternal, to the one and only source of light in existence, you drift into darkness. You drift into the demonic. Prayer, Salah and Psalm and Ibadah are but facilitators to the enlightenment of Zikr. They're facilitators. There are mechanisms to get you there. But you have to do them with your soul, not with your body. And if you keep doing things with your body and not your soul, your soul will invariably drift into the darkness. Now, after this, that there are most people what greatly enhances their drift into darkness is they distract themselves from the truth of dhikr. They distract themselves by being fixated on the glamour of things, on the zukhruf of things. Zukhruf al-hayat al-dunya. They think that the car that they buy is going to bring them the happiness that they desire. If they just get this dress, if they just get this suit, if they just purchase this, if they just buy that, that will get them. But they always experience it momentarily at the time of purchase. And they're back again. Invariably, they're back again. Where did that feeling? So they chase the feeling again. And they chase the feeling again with another purchase and another purchase. Now, when Jesus comes in in Surah Zuhruf, it is to alert us to another type of Zuhruf.
the zukhruf that we encounter with the example of Jesus is the zukhruf of fancy beliefs that fulfill human need for superstition and mythology but have nothing to do with the truth. So why did Jesus become deified? It is because the traditions and practices of people at the time deified human beings. And the idea of trinities was the ideology of the day. And so, attracted to the ideology of the day and what was cool, hip, and happening and the day, they deified Jesus and invented the, the whole idea of the Trinity. In my view, Surah Al-Zukhruf is then alerting you to how ideas themselves could be glamorous and beliefs themselves could be glamorous. It is not just material things, but ideas and beliefs and ideologies. And that is why then we find that right before Surah Al-Zukhruf talks about Isa salam. It comments about the fate of human beings who have done this. Says, we, we were not, we, they were unjust to themselves. They're the ones who committed the injustices against themselves because they became drawn and attracted to all the things that they shouldn't have been. And that's in, in 78 said, we, we brought you the truth. We told you the truth. But it's you who keeps resisting the truth and being averse to it. And that is why the way that the commentary on that part it's capped or comes in, in, it's concluded why if it was true not in the world of grammar glamour but if it was true that that god would have children then of course we would all worship the sons and daughters of divinity but that's a glamorous idea without truth. This is 81.
Notice in 84, وَهُوَ الَّذِي فِي السَّمَاءِ إِلَاهٌ وَفِي الْأَرْضِ إِلَاهٌ وَهُوَ الْحَكِيمُ الْعَلِيمُ The grammatical construction here is a bit unusual because it says he is the one who is a god in the heavens and a god on earth. And then, وَتَبَارَكَ الَّذِي لَهُ مُلْكُ السَّمَوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ وَمَا بَيْنَهُمَا وَعِنْدَهُ عِلْمُ السَّاعَةِ وَإِلَيْهِ تُرْجَعُونَ وَهُوَ الَّذِي فِي السَّمَاءِ إِلَاهٌ وَفِي الْأَرْضِ إِلَاهٌ There were some Arabs at the time of the, of the Prophet that in reaction to 84, said, see, it must be that God is divided into two. He is a God in the heavens and then a God on earth in response to 84. But in fact, what 84 is, is, under, is underscoring by a form of emphasis is that the same Law the, the laws of divinity are indivisible. God is supreme. God is unchanging. Whether God is in the Malakut, the world where of of the Malakut, or whether God is in the world of Mulk. The, that very straightforward basic idea that all monotheism is based on. And then it reminds us again that Surah Al-Zukhruf is talking to people who believe in God. وَلَئِنْ سَأَلْتَهُمْ مَنْ خَلْقَهُنَّ مَنْ خَلْقَهُمْ لَيَقُولُنَّ اللَّهِ فَأَنَّ يُؤْفَكُونَ If you ask them who created them, they will say God. So we're reminded again that this surah is not to a people other than us. But it is for us. Because in fact, this, it, is, it talks to people who believe in God. Despite that, وَقِيلِهِ يَا رَبِّ إِنَّ هَؤُلَاءِ قَوْمٌ لَا يُؤْمِنُونَ Despite of that, it says the complaint. And here it doesn't specify who's complaining, whether the Prophet or the angels. But these are a people who do not believe. So yet, they know that God is, they believe in God, they know that God is the creator, but they don't believe. What is the clear meaning of this? Is that to believe in God, you also believe that the only real glamour is the, the divine. It is only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala the only source of light, the only source of life. So you could believe, but not really believe. فَصْفَحَانْهُمْ 
وقل سلام فسوف يعلمون. So forgive them and say peace. And this is precisely why Surah Al-Zukhruf says forgive them and say peace. Because we know what will happen in Medina years later with the so-called hypocrites of Medina, Munafiqun. These are people who said we believe. But there were all types of ailments with their belief system. Now, of course, the scary thing is that by this yardstick, whether the category of the hypocrites extends to so many people in the modern age who are Muslim. Okay, now we get to why Surah Al-Zukhruf at that time. Surah Al-Zukhruf was revealed after Surah Al-Shura. And there is a reason for that, but we haven't dealt with Surah Al-Shura, so I'll talk about this inshallah later. But it's, it's astounding that Surah Al-Zukhruf is revealed after Surah Al-Shura. And Surah Al-Zukhruf is coming at a time right before they will now leave Mecca altogether. And remember, as we said before, the sacrifices that the people who will migrate from Mecca to Medina have made are enormous. But it underscores exactly like Surah Al-Shura that it is revealed post-Isra and right before the Hijra. It underscores the importance of the message. You are going to go and you are going to attempt to build a new society based on a whole set of different norms. The biggest danger that you will confront is the Zuhruf. In the same way that the biggest danger that you will confront is despotism in Surah Al-Shura, the lack the inability to live according to a system of surah. But the biggest danger you are also going to confront is that as a society that things would go well for you. And as the blessings of Allah come in and pour in, you become fixated on material things and on class and prestige and symbolisms of power. And the entire Islamic project then would have gone astray. But I believe Surah Al-Zukhruf was not just talking, about, obviously, it's not just talking to Muslims who are going to migrate to Medina. More importantly, by being revealed at that time, it was telling us any uh, us in, in in Islam after Islam have become the the majority faith for in all these countries. So many of you believe that you are believers, and only Allah knows you know what Allah will do with this belief, but. 
check, you want to check whether in fact you are attached to the divine or attached to the demonic. Check your value system. Is it focused on the zuchruf of life or focused on the divine and the substance of things? And what represents the divine are virtues, including ethical virtues. And Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen Daris Surat Zukhruf. I think this this is um, I think this is a quote from Ismail Haqqi. Uh, he just he wrote something that caught my attention. He says um العجب كل العجب من علماء العصر ومتفقهة الزمان يتلون هذه الآية ونحوها والأحاديث المطابقة لها في المعنى ثم يتأملونها تأملا صحيحا ولا يتبعون فيها نبيهم الكريم في ترك الزينة والتناعم He's talking about um, uh, uh, ulama at his time and he's saying that the scholars of his age uh, recite uh, a lot of the ayat, and he, he's he's uh, uh, he's talking about the ayah that uh, says um, that refers to those who are raised in nashauna uh, that those who are raised in 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 hulia, in luxury and so on. And saying, well, the scholars of his age, you know, they, they'll recite an ayah like this and they'll study the hadith, uh, uh, but yet they they, they don't uh, they don't stay away from luxuries. They don't stay away from material things. That, that that's where they. So in other words, the scholars of his age are are materialistic as everyone else. Um, and it's it's one of the 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 remarks that made as we went on that made sort of the meaning of Surah Al-Zukhruf quite clear in in my mind um, and the intention of Surah Al-Zukhruf quite clear this of course um, This, and of course, in, in, um, coupled with the role of Surah Al-Zukhruf in, in, um, in Islamic history and, um, and so on. Thank you so much for for this. I mean, I, I think that like when we finished the end of the halakha on Saturday and you asked us the question, you know, hear all these disparate parts and how do they all come together? And then to hear, you know, your approach today is truly mind blowing. It's like those moments where again, you feel it viscerally, you, you recognize the truth of it and you see it before your eyes. I mean, it's like every single age. I mean, I feel 
like th that is our challenge especially you know living in Los Angeles where it's like the mecca of, of wealth and money you know that was always a challenge for people who were not interested in you know scholarship and scholars and you know things like that so when you see the truth of it in your in your own context it just hammers home like how this meaning you know how the Quran should come alive for us so it's just very exciting so thank you alhamdulillah um, can you tell us what the dhikr is? It's eighty-four and eighty-five. Okay, Joe, you want to start us off? Do you have a question? Go ahead, uh, I'll go after. Okay. Thank you very much, Professor. Just echoing Grace's comments. I'm glad we had a whole session on Saturday for the traditional approach that really today just you see how fresh and innovative and um, I, I mean the question is simple but I, I'd like to explain it the question is do we have any reports for how the Muslims at the early Sahaba at the time responded to Zuchruf? Um the reason I ask is because there seems to be a bit of a disconnect you know this is late Meccan community getting persecuted to death literally in some cases you know and yet the whole theme of Zuchraf is you know don't fall for the glitz and the glam yeah. what glitz and glam it's, yeah. it, it's easy to say with hindsight oh yeah there's a hijra Muslims yeah. didn't know that at the time Zuchraf is clearly foreshadowing a changed reality so do we have reports that early Muslims kind of on the basis of Zuchraf kind of came to the Prophet and said Prophet are our circumstances about to change is, is the real test about to begin that discount. No, yeah, that's a good question. The, the question is, is it, at you know, the time that it's sort of the Zohar of the field, um, and this is, by the way, we're going to see this also, inshallah, with sort of the Shura as well, um, that at the time that they received sort of the Zohar of their um miserably persecuted and there is no glitz and gra glamour um, and um, then it the, the, this is the sort of the, uh, so it it foreshadows a change um, but I don't know if if at the time that they received it, they, they realized that it's foreshadowing a change. There is, um, Surah Tzohar is, is, is um, uh, one of the Surah where you don't have many reports at all for occasions of revelation, ne nearly none. There, there's one, but it's not, it's been rejected by even most scholars. And, um, so, when you you have a surah that doesn't have, uh, as Bab al reports, not even conflicting ones or, or anything, uh, it it usually tells you that it was when it was revealed, it was just received as is, and then you later on re read. Um, uh, when uh, when it was when people quoted it in different circumstances or when people uh, or, or um, 
reports about how, how when it was recited, or you know whether it was recited in Eid, or whether it was recited in Ramadan, or whether it was etc. etc. Um, so you don't have occasion to. So it's. I think that. I would imagine. Um, we do have a. A. Um, uh, but it wasn't. It it's not from the time. It was uh, a report from the Tabi'in that basically said something to the effect that. Um, that um, uh, Surah Al-Zukhruf uh, comforted the Muslims as to why the people who are persecuting them continue living in great wealth. But that, that's sort of the opinion of the of, uh, of the of the narrator of, of that tradition. Um, what is, what transpires, you know, within the earliest Tafsir literature, and especially in, in uh, among the Sufi uh, uh, poetry and Sufi writings, is, um, and this is what, what the thing that caught my attention the, the most, is that um, there there was, I think, with the familiarity with the language, was still the the, the, the the transmission of the living memory of the practices of the Sahaba, was a a um, a, a realization that Surah Al-Zukhruf was warning people about uh, the the material corruptions of or the. The, exactly that. That sort of the, um, and and that's what helps then put the surah together. The, it becomes very clear that it's talking about the zuchof, literally as as it's called. Um, but I yeah I I mean it, what one would pay to go back and live that moment because I can I can imagine you know the, the time that they are so severely persecuted they haven't even started the hijra yet and but it's going to start soon and surah al-zuhruf is talking to them about um the the zuhruf of, of life and and so it yeah there it would be a psychological disconnect but that that's the nature of a lot of the late Meccan revelation. I mean, it's remarkable because it, in retrospect, we can see what was going on. Um, if you are living at the time, it makes it explains why only the the purest of souls stuck with this. Um, the, the the strongest of human beings are the ones that came, that stayed with the prophet um, because it 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 required a reflective soul it required that you you truly embrace the desire to um, 
transform as a human being and to to enter into you know things that that could not have been familiar to them at all uh, Sheikh, this was absolutely brilliant insight I mean uh, even one could say it more than usual I don't know how that's possible but that was amazing um, my question is a question that I've had for a while and I figured it, it, it seems to be coming more clear but I figured I'd ask you directly um, in your approach um, technically how would you differentiate between w what it means to you and your approach morality and ethics and virtue is it that ethics is some type of applied morality the way that you see it how would you distinguish these uh, well can you repeat the question yeah the question is um, about the, the way I, I understand morality and ethics I mean that, that that's of course a very tough question um, uh, let's put it this way okay I start with where I think all Muslims should start that I take very seriously when when I the, one of the most liberating things in Islamic philosophy is um, when people it, 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 the idea of a tahalluq bi akhlaqillah that to become a virtuous human being you embrace the virtues of divinity of godliness itself and that we don't spend a lot of time in the modern age doing this but that, that's that's really unfortunate is that sifatullah the 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 attributes of god the um um uh, yeah, the attributes of it. Uh, if you study the attributes, you the the Asma'ullah Husna and the philosophy of Asma'ullah Husna, you find that they in fact present a comprehensive, remarkably beautifully balanced world of virtue world of goodness so if you take all the different asma and you put them the names and you put them and you study them um, and you study for the philosophical tradition around them one of the books that I, I have in the library it's a, it's a um, I forgot the, the, the author it's a 12 volume work on asma Allah husna and one of the the, the, the the best investment of time I've done is I've read through the 12 volumes. Um, and you, you, you see the interaction and the interplay and how much thought at least our forefathers put into this. So, and, and these virtue represent 
in my view, illuminosity. It, they represent life and light. So when Allah says that the purpose of this entire message is to take people out of darkness into light, the only way you can understand that, because, you know, darkness into light, it, it, most people just recite it, okay, and, and then it tells you that those who are opposed to God, they take people out of light, from light into darkness, and people recite it, but they don't reflect on it. Like, so what does that mean? What does it mean to take people from darkness into light? And it, because we, we, you know, we're not talking about light bulbs. We, we, so... So many Muslims live and die, and they don't even begin to understand what that means. And what does it mean, darkness into light? And, and why, why do we need God to go from darkness into light? I mean, why can't we just be good human beings, as people say? Well, you know, if you just live an ethical life, isn't that light? You know, how is that different from darkness? If we Muslims want to be present and compelling for the modern age, we need to embrace these questions again. So these set of virtues is to me when Allah invites us consistently into an into a a a, a life with divinity, into a life with ethics. Allah is inviting us into a life of, as I and I've put it sometimes in some of my writings, it's like a as a, a symphony of virtues, where if you take, you know, you can take a, a, some notes and they sound like a good melody, maybe, but you don't get a sense of the full symphony unless you put it all together, and unless you have a good performance, you know, because, and um, so part of it is that to understand the difference between um, the absolute abstract ethic and then the the derivations from an absolute ethic that are often responsive to their interaction with other ethics. So it's like, you know, the, the grandfather ethics, if you will, like justice. They, they stand there like, like overarching constitutional principles. But they gain meaning only in relation to all the other moving parts. Um, but that's, you know, that's a much, and I've, um, one of the things that, again, I, I mean, I've, I've uh, 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 one of the things that I've, I've dreamt of um, is to have a class, for instance, um, I don't know how many classes it would take to go through all of Allah, it's not Allah Husna, to, to, 
teach Asma'ullah Husna and to teach the, the interaction between Asma'ullah Husna and to leave because the silence of the modern age on something like that is deafening. It, it just, it, um, and as a result of for years, for about now 30 years, I would often go and ask every time I'm invited to speak at an Islamic conference or an Islamic center and so on, I would just ask the people, the, who, the organizers or the imams or whoever I could ask, what does it mean for us when Allah tells us that Allah takes us from darkness into light? And, and 30 years, I've never gotten a response. Um, but then what are we inviting people to? If we can't answer that, then what are we really inviting people to? It's critical. And, and I think what if, you know, not everyone is going to read the answer we give, but just knowing that the answer is there and just being able to say, if you really want a thoroughly, an exhaustively philosophical answer, it's that read this and this source. It, it would do wonders uh, because at, at, you know at least even the dua the 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 the, the, uh, the advocates would have the confidence that the work is done um, and, and 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 part of the the the, the 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 modern Muslim predicament is lack of confidence because we you know I, I feel sorry for for our the, our enthusiastic young generation because they they have a lot of energy but they don't have a lot of answers and there are a lot of gaps that they labor under but at the same time you know it's it's like how do you convince Muslims that long before Islamophobia appeared on the uh, you know, I was warning Muslims of the rise of Islamophobia when I first read Daniel Pipe's article, uh, Muslims Are Coming. And I remember people used to, like, snicker and think I'm insane, you know. And then Islamophobia exploded, and still Muslims didn't react. I mean, even with everything that occurred with Islamophobia, that hasn't sparked any real reaction, and uh, at least in proportion to the to the problem. Um, so uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. It, it, um, this holocaust was. I mean, they're they're all very powerful, but this one especially was was special. It's very daunting because it, I think for us now we have to figure out what this means exactly in our society because I think the concepts in, in our society of security or ambition or self-esteem are very based in the fact that our identity is tied into ambition and prestige 
and the the idea of how to even excavate that out of myself is daunting. Um, when you were talking about the part on, on Qareens and given that these different interpretations of what that could mean are not exclusive and given that you've talked about I mean the Quran has said before that shayateen can come in the form of, of humans and, and jinn and it's, I mean we tend as human beings to attract and to be attracted to people that reflect our inner state so could that Qareen be a human that keeps us locked? Because I can imagine you, most of the friends that we become attracted to are ones that validate whatever we're seeking to be validated. That's what most of our relationships are, are based on. Um, so that almost seemed, I mean, obviously the idea of having a demon attached to it is, is terrifying, but it seems equally as terrifying, if not more terrifying, in the sense of the hereafter, is to be attached to people that keep you locked in the same patterns and same ideas because they validate whatever it is, belief systems that keep you pursuing the zukhruf in very subtle ways? No, that's a really good question. I'm really happy you asked that question. Um, uh, because um, the ones who've written a great deal on this, and even uh, Shah Ghazali in his Ahiyya Alum al-Din, his, his chapter on Sadaqa and friendship, um, talks about this. But the, the Sufi-esque tafsir and Sufi-esque literature, Sufi literature has, has written a great deal on this. And the answer is absolutely yes, that, that if if your soul they, they actually the way they put it I really like it they say if the shaitani elements if the shaitani elements outweigh the Rabbani elements so all of us have divine elements in us and demonic elements in us and if your demonic elements outweigh your divine elements, then you become attracted to people who are also have, have the demonic elements outweigh the divine elements. And the problem is that then you validate each other because we tend to be attracted to people who validate us. We, we don't, we're normally not attracted to people to, that challenge us. Normally people that challenge us repel us. Um, so, a, a shaitani person doesn't validate a rabbani person. A shaitani person validates a shaitani person. And so th that's one aspect that is, that is very dangerous, but even there's a, something that even more scary about this, and and one that I believe in, um, and that is, if you have an actual demon attached to you, um, the the demon that is attached to you will always incite you towards the demonic including the demonic people, including relationships 
that are all glitz and glamour, all, all relationships that validate the demonic. I have never either read or experienced or seen or heard of of a demonic influence that induced someone to become attached to a Rabbani influence. It just doesn't happen. Uh, the, the demonic will always induce someone to be, to be attracted to the demonic. And, uh, you know, look at our own lived experience. There are people, I mean, I, I, okay, I mean, this, this is, you, you are in LA, uh, when we would go to, to LA type places, like Third Street Promenade where fancy people are or whatever, and you see certain people, you know, of course, reading their aura in an instant, I, you know. But you know you could predict who these people will be attracted to. You know, we have, you know, language that, that you know, pretty people will be attracted to pretty people, but it's, the, the demonic is attracted to demonic, and they validate each other. And the 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 reach heights and superficiality that are truly, you know, worthy of of ancient Rome. Um, uh, look, uh, if if any of you have, well, I'm not telling you you should do, but if you look, watch some of the documentaries um, that um, pop up on some of the, you know, like Amazon or, or Netflix, whatever, about the lifestyles of some people. And, and you just, you see it. It's, just, it's, it's amazing. It, or even the so-called um, uh, reality shows. It, if they would truly make Shaitan proud. I mean, a prob I'm sure Shaitan is very proud of it. But that is a, a, and that is why if you are working with a sheikh, often the advice of a sheikh, um, if you want the journey, to really walk the journey, and the sheikh knows that you are really committed, and he will say, begins with severing your relationships. Um, because if your demonic outweighs your divine, then in all probability, all the relationships that you've formed are of a similar nature. And it is not about whether people are nice or not. It is about the zuhruf. What value system do people affirm in you? What are they tell you it is impressive to be impressed by? Um, when I was growing up, there were, there were still parts of society, I don't know if it still exists back home, probably, you know, I, I don't know, because back home has also become very corrupt, um, 
But you know, I've I've known uh, people when a guy, for instance, had decided to dump his wife of twenty or thirty years and go off with uh, someone. I know it, it was still in society a lot of people that would say. Okay, if you're going to treat your, your ex-wife or your old wife this way, you're not welcome in our home. Or I, another one, I, I remember this thing when a guy wanted to take a second wife and uh, basically uh, gave his, his first wife, you know, either you accept this marriage or I'm going to divorce you. So many people, it's like, okay, you and your new wife, you're not welcome in our home. In this society, when I've noticed how, and even now in, in modern Arab societies, it's like this, it's the same thing. If someone says, I want to divorce my spouse, their friends, it's like, oh, I support you. And their families, I support you. It, it, it hasn't become about virtue anymore. It hasn't become about right or wrong anymore. It's not, it, no one thinks it's like, well, you know, no, this is not right because of your children. Um, your children have rights, the, you know, you, 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 you can't put... No, the whole system works to validate your indulgences. And that's all a part of it. It's like all the children will be fine, and we all know that they're not going to be fine. We all know what happens to children in Brooklyn homes, and we all know what, you know, the, 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 the misery they go through, and yet, Um, my question is about Umul Kitab in this surah. Um, you've mentioned before that it refers to the immutable, unchanging core of revelation. Mm. And I think uh, a long time ago, I, I don't think it was a project, but you talked about the muhkam and the mutashabih and how the muhkam also refers to this. And in that verse in the Quran, it says, Hunna Umul Kitab. But the the way that this verse is written, um, it's because it says inna hu fi ummil kitab ladaina la aliyun hakim. So inna hu the pronoun refers to al kitab or al Quran, right? But what does it mean fi ummil kitab? Like, what's the preposition doing there? How does that? Repeat the question. Uh, I, I, I don't know how to repeat that question. <laughs> um, Give us an idea. I mean, the, uh, it's sort of the, the um, to make it more accessible, I guess, or would say, um, where it, this is verse 4. In the Jannah, Quran, and Arabian, we made it. An Arab, an Arabic Quran, so that you may reflect and ponder and reason and so on. وَإِنَّهُ فِي أُمِّ الْكِتَابِ لَدَيْنَا لَعَلِيٌّ حَكِيمٌ And it is in the mother of the book. 
and the Dana here, there's a big grammatical discussion about the 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 word Ladaina. Is it saying that? Uh, is it saying that? Um, it is with us in the mother of the book. And so if we if it means the sacred tablet, if it's saying that in the sacred tablet, this Arabic Quran is Ali is high and Hakim wise, but if if so, then is how could it be that does this mean that it is wise and 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 high uh, and supreme uh, in Umm Kitab with us but not with you that wouldn't make sense so but Ladaina here the, that word it say instead it means we've made it with us that because because it came from us and it came from Umm Kitab it came from the the uh, first. We'll take the Omikta means sacred, the, the sacred tablet, because it came from the sacred tablet. It is high, uh, supreme, and it is wise. But I, the point that I was making was that when the Quran refers to the sacred tablet, it says Allah al Mahfuz which means literally sacred tablet. But rather Umm al-Kitab, the, the, the mother of the book. And grammatically, that could mean that if, it, if it's part of the mother of the book, it is supreme, means unwavering, and Hakim wise and decisive so what i what i was saying is that instead of just simply reading umm kitab to means to mean the sacred tablet which i mean it's possible but it just it it why would the sacred tablet be referred to as umm kitab here while the quran elsewhere refers to umm kitab as um the the um the parts of the Quran that are mahkamat, or the parts that are absolute and unchanging. Um, you can un you can read this verse in this context to say that coming that this, if it comes from Umm Kitab, if it's part of the 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 heart, it's like saying if it's part of the heart of the Quran then it is supreme and most wise. It's, if you, if you, if, that's, a, you know, another way of saying it, that if it comes from the heart of the Quran, if it comes from Umm Kitab, if it comes from the, the core of the Quran, and the core of the Quran, in my view, is the Mahkamat, the, the, the parts of the Quran that, you know, are not talking, for instance, about, how do you treat the wives of the prophet? Um, um, although that, as we will, inshallah, when we get to that part, although that 
way of understanding the, the, the Quranic discourse is unusual. I mean, a lot of people would disagree, or the traditional approach would disagree. But we'll, we'll leave that question, inshallah, when we get to it. Okay. Any other questions here? Okay, I'm going to combine a few questions because I think they sort of get at the heart of the same thing. Um, first, how do we strike a balance between enjoying the beautiful things in life without allowing it to take over our purpose and relationship with Allah? Um, second, my son is a freshman in college getting interested in stocks and starting to participate in GameStop, GameStop stocks, I think. I feel it will teach him greed in the long run and I am opposing it. Can I justify my answers according to Islamic ethics in this aspect? And then, assalamu alaikum, were there steps or guides offered by the Sufis to guard the self from attachment to the glitter? Perhaps you could share with us an example. Um, you know, um, okay, so first about the, the um, um, what's game stops? GameStop, you know the video game? Oh, oh, GameStop, oh, the video, oh. But stocks in general, right? Yeah. Listen, um, you know, I, I've, I, I worked uh, in a securities law firm, and yes, um, most of the people that I've met in, in securities legal practice, all the clients were extremely greedy people. But, you know, it, it's not, um, it, it doesn't mean that uh, if you trade in stocks that you, uh, because there, there is some stock trading that is highly speculative and, um, um, and require an obsessive level of follow-up. And some stocks that are, you know, Pretty much stable. Um, they're they're not high yielding, but they're uh, they're an investment. They they move very little, a little up, a little down. So I mean, like everything. Um, but let, let's get to the to, to this heart of the issue of a lot of people. And and this is a question you know that a lot of um, contemporary Muslims, especially in Islamic movements. Um, when they were confronting the issue of, um, well, we want to be successful in life, and you know we don't want Muslims to live on the margin of life and um, not be successful and so on. Uh, uh, one, the, the we should always encourage our children and ourselves to pursue what has meaning and what benefits humanity rather than what simply makes money. Uh, that's just as a principle. So it, it encourages your, your, your children to not come up with um, uh, you know, uh, not not pursue pharmaceuticals so they can make it big when they sell this medicine or that medicine, um, but to 
to teach them that as a Muslim, it is our obligation to serve humanity and to use sciences and to use finance and to use banking and to use um, the science of administration and to use management to, to benefit human beings and to do what is the most humane and the most moral always and to think of issues of social justice in what we do uh, and and fairness and equity now what if what you do d despite your focus on the right things you're making a lot of money my answer is always the same there's one sure cure for um, that is a very powerful counter to materialism and that's giving giving um, you know there are people that many many people that live paycheck, paycheck to paycheck there are people who will only feel safe if they have $5,000 in the bank. There are people who can't imagine having $5,000 in the bank. There are people who will only feel safe if they have $20,000 in the bank, $50,000 in the bank, $100,000 in the bank. What you discover is that human beings, the richer they become, the bigger the safety net that they always want. And so many rich people, when they, um, you know, they, you discover that the, the, the issue with them is that their safety net, the size of their safety net is, um, is what's inequitous and unfair. Uh, there is nothing that is a good counter to reliance on materialism like, well, two things. And this is very consistent, by the way, with all the Sufi advice. Giving and sharing your wealth. If Allah gives you the, the gift of making a lot of money, okay, fine. But share it. Share it and and share it even when it makes you uncomfortable. If you have a stable job, then you don't need uh, the safety net savings. That uh, if you have health insurance and you have a stable job and it's not like you know you don't need it. And you know, think of all that you're not better than all the human beings that live paycheck to paycheck. Uh, that's one. The other um, is service. Human beings resist service. Resist. Human beings will. Hardest two things to give money and time. There are a lot of people that will sacrifice, are willing to sacrifice their life for you, but not their time and not their money.
if there is a car that's going to hit you, they'll jump in front of the car and, and, and give up their life. But if you ask them to give you time, sacrifice time in service, they won't do it. Or give you money, they won't do it. This is what Utiyatul Anfus Shuh. This is the the Shuh that Allah speaks about. The the that that stinginess is that if I, it's one thing if I don't exist, but if I'm going to exist, then I need to feel my time is mine because it makes us anxious if we don't control our time, and and it's a, it's a fear of death that people don't realize this, but and the control of money. You, you want to counter, give generously and volunteer service. I don't care what the service is. Um, the more humbling is it is, the better. Volunteer in, in soup kitchens. Volunteer helping battered women volunteer uh, abused children, volunteer helping the homeless, volunteer in, in prisons, volunteer in, in what, whatever, it, if, if you have something that is an Islamic, um, you know, don't volunteer to anywhere that is an ego trip. So, you know, some people say they volunteer in schools. Okay, fine, but as long as these schools don't allow you to feel that you're a sheikh and a, and a grand mufti, so you go around pontificating about religion, um, because then it's an ego trip, and it, it's not going to humble you. Uh, the volunteer work has to be a humbling work, and that will, that will often cure it. That will, I mean, a lot of people complain is because they, they, they don't want to take that step. They don't give or they don't volunteer. And, um, and so they, they, they're standing in the shore theorizing. You know, they, they're not jumping in the ocean. Uh, if, you, if you're anxious about this, try it. Just try this, this remedy, this dual remedy, the giving and the volunteering, and you'll see you'll find that all the Sufi advice given over the centuries comes true automatically. Thank you, Sheikh. Just to um, follow up on your answer there, I'm, just, I'm thinking that the challenge of Zuhruf is, is enormous because volunteering in charity can itself become a Zuhruf if you stop feeling pride, or you stop feeling happy about it. I, I was thinking this because I was reading screw tape lessons recently, and uh, yeah, screw tape players. Yeah, yeah. And the, the, the guy starts doing some charity, and so the letter screw tape says to Wormtail is, "Plant a seed of pride in his heart." Right. And then that becomes a zakhr. Oh, look at me! You know, I volunteer at soup kitchens every Saturday. Mashallah. Right? Yeah, I mean, but that—that's I—I mean, that's why it's um, whatever the volunteer work you do, it. it the, the, you know, it, it should be service, meaning that you're not exercising authority and power over others, not even children. Because I've seen a lot of Muslims that will volunteer in school on Sundays, and they boss kids around, 
or they pontificate about uh, what Islam is, and they don't know anything, or they, you know, and so it's an ego trip. Uh, no, vol volunteer is something that does good, that helps people, and do doesn't uh, promote you. It doesn't make you feel, you know, doesn't, uh, it's not going to look good on your resume. In fact, it's not going to be on your resume. Um, uh, a lot of volunteer work, you know, and this is another thing, you know, a lot of, uh, we don't teach our kids volunteer and forget it. Don't, don't have it on your CV or resume. So many kids are raised with, oh, this will look good on your resume, do this. Um, and that's a problem. I mean, it, it, you know, everything is is geared towards serving the the ego, uh, and and the the and and the you know that's that's that when your ego shares divinity, that's literally forcing a a partner upon God. It's like, I am the it. I am the beginning, the end. It's not you, God. No, it's me. It's when I came to life, that's when it all began. And when it's, I'm going to die, that is when it's all going to end. I'm not going to think very much about the fact that you're the only eternal one. You're the only one that come, has no beginning, no end, and so on. No, it's all about me. And if I can see it, then it counts. If I can't see it, then it doesn't count. If I can feel it, then it counts. If I can't feel it, then it doesn't count. That's exactly وَجَعَلُوا لِلَّهِ جُزْءًا That you've, you've grafted yourself upon divinity. You are partaking in divinity. God doesn't bless that. That, that's the the, the the hard thing is that you know a lot of people say we do dua why other Allah answering our dua have you really examined your relationship to Allah because I can tell you that when your relationship to Allah is healthy Allah doesn't turn down your dua in, in, in fact you have pretty much an open door to Allah uh, Okay, well, we're getting down to our last couple minutes, um, but th these are there are two questions that I thought um, I could just throw out. Maybe we could do a very quick answer. Um, <clears throat> one question. Thank you for always bringing the Quran to life. Um, the question is, in authoritarian settings, we oftentimes place emphasis on the ruler or the pharaoh, but is there a shared responsibility on society or members of society, for example, the nobles, pharaohs, people, to actively fight corruption or else you're aiding corruption and authoritarian rule. And I mean, you just gave a whole chutzpah on this. So if you haven't seen it, I just wanted to point out this last Friday, he addressed that exact question. I don't know if you wanted to add any more to that. Um, but then the other question um, that I remember, um, the question is what is mulk and malakut? And I remember that when I was like early in learning your stuff, and I was talking to other Muslims, this is when I was still a convert and assumed that every other Muslim was like knew everything. 
And so I was saying, oh, you know, you've heard the terms milk and malakut before, right? And they had it uh -huh. obviously. So just for the benefit of people who had, are not familiar with those terms. Yeah, the, the first question, I mean, I, I'm not, uh, because I, I've, I've talked about this in, in, in the khutbah, and, and I've actually quoted Surah Al-Zukhruf, um, um, and um, so much of, of what, I mean, quite, to be quite honest, quite honest, it's, it's, it's so much of what has defined my life um, is this precise issue. Um, um, uh, I mean, if uh, you know, if if you were the, or if if I was the type of person that would just condemn the rulers and get the heat off the so-called nobility, i.e. the 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 rich people in society, the powerful people in society, definitely my life would have been much easier. Um, uh, I mean, there there's... Uh, there's a tendency for, for wealthy people to like those who stroke their egos and become very irritated with someone who doesn't stroke their egos. And uh, um, someone told me, well, a lot of people told me, um, that you're, you, you, you're never going to please the powerful and wealthy if you don't stroke their egos. And that's the difference between a good fundraiser, fundraiser and someone who doesn't raise funds. So I guess, yeah, that's why I've always been a flop in raising funds. So I refer you to all the khutbahs and all the writings that have been the pain and agony of my existence. Um, the the second question. Mukamaku. Mukamaku. Uh, yeah, there are in you what what it's confusing for a lot of people is that malakut is often in non-specialized writing will sometimes be used to describe the cre the um, the world we live in, the, the Hayat al-Dunya. But in a genre of literature and in the usage that I've adopted a long time ago, the Malakut refers to the realm of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to the to the to the, the Arsh, the throne and the, the Malaikat al-Arsh and the uh, angels of the throne and everything that is within the dimension of uh, of the of that kingdom um, that's the Malakut and the Mulk is all the material existence, whether that material existence is seen or unseen. So the jinn living uh, on, on this planet or other planets are part of the mulk, while the angels that come into our world and go back to the throne, 
uh, are part of the Malakut. And it doesn't make a difference? Yes, it does. But that's a different, that's a different topic for a different day. Thank you. We're out of time. It's a little bit before nine. Thank you so much, everyone. Um, it's wonderful to be with you. And inshallah, we look forward to seeing you this coming Saturday for another halakha. Inshallah at, I don't know, we'll, we'll say the time, five or six. <laughs> okay. Have a wonderful rest of the week. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum.